into scripture. So if you guys have your Bibles, why don't you open up to the book of John chapter, John chapter 19. That's what I thought. John chapter 19. So we've been in a series on Sunday morning. We are in the season currently of what's called Lent. It's a time in which the church comes together to remember what Jesus has done. Um, Lent began with what's commonly known as Ash Wednesday. It's not a biblical celebration, but it is one that kind of historically um, and um, in terms of tradition has become a means where people gather together. They put the ashes on their forehead as a means of basically reminding themselves they're, they're dust, they're human beings. Um, and as human beings, that means that we're 100% fully dependent upon the one who created us, who made us, who loves us. And that's what this is all about, is that we've been in this series looking at Jesus' final sayings from the cross. Um, we have been noting every single week uh, another phrase or word or idea that Jesus communicates. So, for example, the first week we looked at the word of forgiveness, where Jesus says, um, um, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then we looked at a word of hope and Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And we moved on to the word of relationship and or affection where Jesus spots his mother in the, in the crowd and then spots his uh, chief disciple, one of his uh, closest friends, a guy named John. And he has this dialogue that goes on between the two of them. And today we're going to be taking a look at what's commonly known as essentially the sixth word from the cross. It's the phrase, a little phrase called it is finished. And what I want to do right now is I'm going to read that little passage and then we'll get to work looking at some of the important teaching elements about this passage here this morning. Then we will end with a time of com communion to remember Jesus' uh, broken body and poured out blood for us as we look at this really important word. That in essence, it's a word of victory, a word of triumph, which I would highly just say that this is a word that we need more than anything at any other point or time in our life right now. We need to understand and be anchored in the victory that we have been given. So in other words, we work from a status of victory, not for victory. And that's really freeing. And we'll explain that in just a moment. But before we jump in and read, what I'd love to do is just invite you to pray with me and then we'll read and we'll jump in. So, Father, right now we just come to you and we just ask that you would speak to our, our hearts. We need you, Jesus. We're reminded that um, in this body uh, we are frail. And I, I can't think of a time, in, especially in this generation, that we have been more reminded on a global scale of our mortality than the past uh, two weeks. Um, and so, God, more so than any other period in our history, we need a word of hope and victory. And we thank you, Jesus, that that's exactly what we have here right now in this text. So speak to us. Uh, help me to be able to communicate and teach the things that are on your heart. Uh, give us all collectively, no matter where we're at, what city, what state, what country, wherever it is that we are from, just ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are really, really quick to learn and absorb and grow and be transformed by your power. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. John chapter 19, verse 30 says these words. Uh, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and then he gave up his spirit. I'm going to put my glasses here real quick. So what Jesus says here in this um, second to last phrase or word that he speaks from the cross 
is it is finished. Um, um, it's important to note that first and foremost, that some of you, if you have any background of Bible study or studying the life of Jesus, you know that this particular word um, could also mean paid in full. It actually comes from a Greek word, just one Greek word, which is interesting because this technically is only one word that Jesus utters, though in most of our translations, it's three where it says it is finished, or maybe some of your translations might say paid in full. But the big idea is just this one simple word, uh, teleos, or some other translations or other more expanded versions of like uh, um, it's a word that basically means to be paid in full or something that's completed or something that's come to the end of itself. So, for example, even in uh, philosophy, you have the idea of a, the telos of human life. Like, what's the end for which human life is aimed? It's the idea. There's something that is culminating. This is the ultimate culmination that Jesus basically mutters here, that he speaks forth. Um, this is commonly what's known as what's called a condensed symbol, which means that in this little phrase is, is a world, a universe of information and ideas that Jesus wants us to be aware of. Um, so I'll give you a couple ways and ideas in which this particular word was even used within the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world um, of Jesus' day. So, for example, there we have this ancient writing or some of these ancient writings of um, how a when a servant finished their task, um, it would have been described as uh, teleos, meaning they finished whatever the task is that they had on hand. Um, this word is also used to describe uh, the priests when they were kind of in the act of inspecting a, sac a sacrifice. So if you were in the ancient world, you would go bring your sacrifice to the priest. The priest would inspect it and take a look at it. And then if it kind of passed the um, the inspection, he would basically use the word uh, to tell us die or it was passed. You know, is it passing? You go ahead and you can sacrifice this thing up at the altar. Another way of thinking about this is that when a prisoner um, completed their sentence, um, they would have been said that they had to tell us die or uh, tell us their sentence. It would have been a completion of whatever it was. They paid the debt. They paid whatever it was that they had owed to society. Um, this is kind of what that really, really rich word means. And so, um, there's all sorts of ways in which I think Jesus completes something. But what I want to do today, because this is not going to be an hour and a half long um, sermon, um, you're welcome. Um, it's going to be just a few more minutes. And so if you want to read more fuller accounts of kind of what this is, I'd highly recommend a book by a guy named C.H. Uh, Spurgeon. He's one of the greatest preachers of all time. You can download it on, or find it on Amazon. Or you can download it to your Kindle, whatever. Um, it's a great, rich book. In fact, he's got the, uh, an actual book that's simply called The Seven Words or Seven Sayings of Christ from the Cross. I'm actually going to read a couple quotes from him because what he has to say on this is really, really rich. But I'm only giving you a handful of the ways in which Jesus has actually, um, what he meant by, probably would have meant by this uh, phrase, um, from the cross saying, it is finished, or crying out with this loud voice, it is finished, or tetelestai. What did he mean by that? We'll only look at three of them. Again, like I said, there's lots of different ways in which you can elaborate or expound upon this. So here's the three things that I think that Jesus probably meant when he said this. Uh, first and foremost, I think he probably just meant the most obvious of them all was that he was going to die. I mean, that this is it. This was the end. It is finished. The life that I've lived up until this time, this state, this period, this season, I'm, I'm about to die. And I just want you to pause and think about that because I don't know how you perceive Jesus or how you think of Jesus. Um, again, depending upon your background, you may have uh, grown up with an understanding of Jesus as being more divine than human. 
Um, and again, maybe in some circles, you may have thought of him as being more human than divine. Um, the way that the church historically has wrestled with this is that um, they have come to see, we have come to inherit the idea that Jesus was both perfectly human and perfectly divine simultaneously at the same time. Someone could ask how to explain that. I don't know how to explain that. All I'm saying is that this seems to be the picture as how the New Testament portrays who Jesus was, that he was both perfectly human, both perfectly divine all at the same time. And that kind of raises this really profound reality about what happens here in this very moment where Jesus is uttering this phrase, it is finished, which means my life is about to be done. Just pause and think about that. Um, as I was considering this and really re reflecting upon this, a couple of things that came to my mind is, is especially in our age and our culture, how much as a society we are trying to outflank and run away from death as much as we can. We have so many means at our disposal today, more so than any other culture in the history of humanity, to somehow either um, uh, distract ourselves away from mortality, um, to remove our ability from having to think about it. We have more creams, we have more pills, we have more gyms, we have more means at our disposal to somehow be able to curb off, to, to push away the effects of um, old age and then ultimately death. Um, I'm, I'm facing this, like um, I'm turning 50 in a couple weeks, which- Couple months. Couple months, okay. A couple months, couple couple months. But the reality is, I just got something in the mail the other day that says, "Hey, you're turning 50. You can join this club. I don't know, AARP or did you see that thing? Anyways, um, I got this like thing. I'm just like, what the heck? This is crazy. But the point of the matter is, I was just like, what? This is weird. This is just another healthy reminder that I'm not going to live forever. We're not. None of us are going to live forever in this planet. And and the reality is. As much as we are trying to do so as a society, we're trying to ward that off as much as we can until until something like the effects of what happened over the past few weeks begin to force us to deal with our own mortality in ways that we're not prepared for. I think it's one of the reasons why we become overwhelmed by these waves of anxiety and fear because we're having to force ourselves to look at something that has always been there that's deeply confusing to us, that's deeply threatening to our livelihood, and that every culture that has ever lived before us has always had to face in more profound ways than we ever had. Mm -hmm. And so when we are faced with our own mortality, whether it be through coronavirus or some form of other means of um, death, um, it, it freaks us out. And again, I think first and foremost, just recognizing here's Jesus just straight up saying, uh, to tell us die. It's, this is the end. I'm going to die. My life has an ending in this particular setting here as it's known. Um, again, as a culture, we have all these unique euphemisms and um, cute ways of trying to describe or define death. We say things like, oh, it's just the circle of life or it's natural. Or we say things you know, like, oh, they're in a better place or they earned their wings and now they're an angel. I just, I actually heard that one. I literally heard that one the other day um, in a show that I was watching where this guy describes his brother. He goes, yeah, my brother, he's dead, but he's a, he's an angel now. And I'm just thinking, dude, like, A, you don't even know that 
for sure. Yet you're bank, banking your hope upon that fact and that reality that you think is a fact or a reality. Or we say, you know, cheap things like, well, God wanted them so bad he took them from us. And so we have all these unique ways in which we try very hard to try to console ourselves in the face of death. Um, and yet the fact is we're not going to live forever. Like that's a sobering reality that this moment of time and this cultural moment has forced us to actually take a hard look at. Um, and many of us are still not prepared or equipped to actually have to deal with that or look at that. So as I was thinking about this, um, throughout history, there's been at least four different ways that different groups, both secular and religious, or people that would follow Jesus, have really tried to deal with the reality of death. So in other words, uh, means and attempts to try to live forever, uh, like in an, in an immortal state. Um, again, there's a secular version of immortality. We would describe it that it's obtainable, or at least assumed to be obtainable, by at least these three particular ways, and then I'll end with a fourth one, and then we'll move on to the very next point. Number one, legacy. That if I can just leave my legacy, if I can be the best basketball player, the most rich person, or the, you know, the, the, the person that owned the most possessions, um, we have all these means by which we assume that if I can just leave a legacy, then when I'm gone, when I'm departed, uh, people will re remember me and recognize me. So number one, legacy. Um, but number two, progeny, meaning if I can just have a good family and my family respects me and honors me and they uh, <clears throat> they recognize my name and when I'm long gone and dead, you know, 50 years from my death, they're still talking about the name of the honor of our father, whatever the case is. So progeny. Um, but what happens if your kids disrespect you or they hate you or you've not done a very good job at being a dad or a mother? And you, in other words, you've just failed as a parent. Now what? Um, again, I would suggest that these means of trying to live forever actually become nothing more than heavy uh, weights around our neck that do nothing but create incredible amounts of despair. The third one is biology. Um, it's very likely, guys, in our lifetime or in the next hundred years that somehow someone will create these like little nanobots that will be able to be injected into your body and root out all sorts of means of pathogens and viruses and anti or, or, or uh, bacteria that somehow we will be able to live, if not forever, uh, at least extend years of our lives. I mean, these are things that are happening right now. It's one of the reasons, and this is kind of not new, but do you realize that um, even some people are like getting um, injections of like like blood from um, like, like children? The idea behind that is like, if we get blood injected or infused into our bodies, we're gonna live a lot longer. Um, but the fact of the matter is, whether it be legacy, progeny, biology, all of these things at some point will fail and they will not promise on what they deliver, which is longevity. They will not deliver. But the hope of the Christian is what we what is found in the phrase of the word resurrection. So for a Christian, we don't deny death. We don't try to run from death. We do acknowledge death is a real thing, but we don't make friends with death. Death is not our friends. Uh, our friend, death is not quote unquote normal. Death is absolutely abnormal. It is a pathogen in God's good creation that one day God promises to actually do something with. And this is exactly what Jesus is addressing on the cross. So number one, he, I think, identifies the fact it means that he would die. Number two, I think it means that he fulfilled all of uh, all that God had called him to do. Another word for this is obedience. Jesus was fully obedient to the Father all the way to the very end. 
another way of thinking about this is that Jesus was 100% faithful to all of the passages of Scripture that spoke of him, that were prophesied about him. Here's a couple examples of this. So Luke chapter 18, verse 31 says, uh, talking to the 12, Jesus said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. The word accomplished is literally our exact Greek word, teleo. He says it will be teleo. It will be fulfilled. And so here's Jesus on the cross. John records for us as he shouts, uh, teleo, to telestai, meaning it was finished. What was finished? Probably, no doubt, in his mind was the fact that he fulfilled and accomplished all that the prophets had written about him. Here's another example in Luke chapter 24, the very end of the book of Luke. Um, this is after Jesus had resurrected from the dead. He is walking on this famous road to Emmaus. And while on this journey, there's a couple of disciples, we're told, that are walking along this road. And they're super discouraged and disheartened and full of despair because in their minds, they begin to explain to Jesus. They didn't know it was Jesus. They're like, hey, Jesus comes up to him. He's like, hey, why are you guys all bummed? And they're like, oh, we're super bummed because we had hoped that this guy by the name of Jesus from Nazareth was going to be the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one that was coming and bring uh, God's peace into this world. And yet, unfortunately, he dies. You know, we watch him literally die and everything. Our hopes are completely over. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 20, uh, 25, he says, then he said to them, as he gathers together with him, he says, O foolish ones who are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets, so we go again, talking about the scriptures, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should also suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted them all the scriptures that were concerning himself. So I think probably what Jesus was referring to here again, no doubt, that this phrase of the shout from the cross, it is finished, was probably a reference to the fact that he fulfilled all the words of God. He was 100% faithful to everything that the Father, God, asked him to do. Again, we would use the word obedience. He was 100% obedient to the Father. That's something that you and I as human beings, not only are we prone to death, even just by natural causes because of sin and death being unleashed upon humanity, but we are also constantly prone to disobedience. Both of these things that Jesus found himself uh, dealing with. Um, so the third thing that I want to take a look at, Jesus was, though, always obedient to the Father. Um, here's one great quote from Spurgeon referring to this. It's a little bit lengthy, so just listen to it. I'm almost done here. He says, take away Christ for one moment, and I will give the Old Testament to any wise man who's living, and then say to him, hey, take this Bible, and here's a problem for you to solve. He says, go home and consult with your imagination of an ideal character who will exactly fit all that which is here spoken of in a foreshadow sense. He goes on to say, remember, he must be a prophet like Moses and yet a champion like Joshua. He must be like Aaron, the high priest, and Melchizedek, the other high priest. He must be both David and Solomon, Noah and Jonah, Judah and Joseph. No, he must not only be the lamb that was slain and the scapegoat that was not slain, the turtle dove that was dipped in blood and the priest who slew the bird, but he must also be the altar, the tabernacle, the mercy seat, and the showbread. And Spurgeon's whole point in saying that is that you, you can't come to any other conclusion that the one that the prophets spoke about, no doubt, without question, was Jesus. And from the cross, Jesus shouts, it is finished. I've done everything. You've called me to do everything that the prophets uh, had spoken about. 
Lastly, I think what it also meant was it meant that Jesus had destroyed all the power of Satan, sin, and death. These are our great enemies. That might come as a shock to you because some of you might be like, oh, I thought my spouse was my enemy or my next door neighbor who has a dog that constantly is barking or my boss who just laid me off or you fill in the blank. Um, we have this tendency to look for some other human being of flesh and blood and somehow create a scapegoat out of them and say that that's our enemy. But according to Jesus, the real enemy is this trifecta, this trifold nature of both uh, of a sin, um, uh, Satan and ultimately death. These are the things that Jesus says are the great enemy. And so one of the things that the scripture teaches and describes that on the cross, Jesus literally crushed the head of Satan. This is the image that actually the very book of Genesis, the very opening book in the entire Bible begins to kind of reveal to us is that Jesus is one that is promised, prophesied that he would come. Uh, that even though he would have his heel struck, meaning he would take a blow, um, and yet ultimately he would crush the head of the one that was found in the garden, the enemy of Satan, the accuser, which is oftentimes another way of describing it, that he would ultimately claim the ultimate victory over all of these things. Listen how Paul would write about this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, he, Jesus, canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. By nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. And what I want you to see and hear and think about and consider that on the cross, when Jesus shouts, it is finished, this is what he's suggesting. Not only is his life finished, but something new, like a seed being planted in the ground, life as it was known is finished. But that's setting the stage for life as is unknown by way of resurrection to come forth. Uh, Jesus is no doubt saying on the cross that it is finished, meaning that he has completely fulfilled all that God had called him to do, which is to bring about the means of perfect obedience so that human beings, as broken, as messed up, as disobedient as we are, can actually have someone carry our weight and our sin in our place and carry our judgment for us. This is what we see Jesus doing on the cross. And then finally, we see Jesus being our victory by way of crushing the, the enemy that is constantly hounding against us. And then Paul is actually going to finish with this little statement. I'm going to finish with this as well. Where in Colossians chapter 2, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. And it's interesting that in the context of saying, Hey, Jesus crushed the head of the enemy, put him to open shame. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you about what you're going to eat or drink. And I found this really fascinating. Why would Paul do this? And I think this is really important because where Paul, especially in the New Testament, begins to play with this concept of Jesus dying on the cross for us is it becomes very practical, meaning that because Jesus is our victory, because the words of Jesus, it is finished, is a profoundly powerful, victorious statement, Paul begins to carry out the implications of that. What does that mean for me as a follower of Jesus? And this is where Paul begins to play on this whole big idea. I'm not going to go into uh, teaching on Colossians, but I want to just summarize with some final thoughts, and I'll wrap it up with an invitation for those of you that maybe uh, need prayer or those of you that aren't followers of Jesus to give your life to Jesus. So number one, I think what we can do is that uh, that we could actually think and feel deeply about what it means for Jesus to be our victory. Not only think about it, but feel it. To there's sometimes we have this mentality that you know emotions 
um, as, as misleading, as misdirecting, misguiding that emotions oftentimes can be, um, any marriage that is devoid of any form of emotion is, is not a super healthy marriage. Obviously, at some point, uh, emotions play. We don't want to be led or guided by our emotion. But the fact of the matter is, I think this is something that we should not only think deeply about, also feel deeply about, feel a deep sense of, affor- uh, of affection and love for Jesus of what he's done for us by way of being our victory. Number two, um, may we hold fast. To Jesus. That's what Paul's actually going to unpack in this little passage in the book of Colossians. That because Jesus is the head, uh, the head of what? The head of a whole new humanity. At what expense? His expense on the cross. On the cross, he paid a price that we should have paid. Uh, he bore for us our sin, our guilt, our shame that we should have borne. And yet he does that for us simply because he's empowered, motivated by love for you and I. And so uh, the idea is that we have this incredible G, uh, headship of Jesus over our lives that we orient the sum total of our lives around Jesus. So number one, may we think and feel deeply about what it means to have Jesus as our victory. Number two, may we hold fast to frame our lives around Jesus as the cornerstone, the head that guides and directs everything that we do. Um, You can decapitate a head from a body and the body ceases to live. You can amputate an arm, a leg, and all these other things. And you're not going to live. You remove a head and you got death. Um, This is why it's so imperative that Jesus really ultimately be central in our lives and everything that we do, how we think, how we feel, how we frame, how we orient the sum total of ourselves. And then lastly, uh, maybe we'd be filled with this sense of hope. Um, And then I was was writing this down. May we not only be filled with a sense of hope, but may we also leak. May we also leak. And here's what I mean by that, is that because Jesus is our victory, What that does, it allows us to approach life in an entirely different manner. It allows us to be able to say, you know what, Um, in some ways, um, the word recklessly comes to my mind, but it's not really living recklessly because what it really is is basically saying, I, I can live my life giving myself to other people, giving myself to the service of helping others, spending my own money on behalf of others, doing what I can to be a blessing to others, buying a pizza to bring a blessing to a local business, buying some coffee, whatever, or going to buy a burrito at a local you know, Mexican restaurant, whatever the case is, I can afford to do these things or buy groceries for our next door neighbor. I can afford to do these, even though my checking account might say, no, no, don't do this. But if the Holy Spirit's guiding and leading me, I can step into that and do that because ultimately, at the end of the day, Jesus is my victory. He's the one that offers me hope. He's the one that gives me everything that I need. Uh, Spurgeon again says this, and I'm done. I love this. He says, it is finished with him, Jesus. Therefore, it shall never be finished for us. Think about that. Because it was finished with him, Jesus, it will never be finished for us. Do you realize the degree of hope and new beginnings that creates for us? It creates a horizon for us that's boundless, that's endless, that will constantly go forever and ever and ever. That's why when we grieve the loss of somebody, maybe they pass away or uh, death overtakes them, we grieve like everybody else. We're bound to uh, even, you know, get the, the virus that like anybody else is. We're bound to find ourselves jeopardized like anybody else. We're mortal human beings, just like anybody else. But the way that we think about death and the way that we grieve loss 
just entirely framed around the fact that not only did Jesus die, but he rose again from the dead, which means that gives us this incredible degree of hope that we can now live into. And lastly, another final statement from Spurgeon, I'm done. He says this, Jesus, the Savior, stands today with the keys of death hanging on his belt. I love this image. It's like this image of this you know, divine, holy, sacred um, custodian that holds the keys of death and Hades on his belt. And he says, and he waits until the hour shall come of which no man knows when the trumpet of the archangel will ring like a silver, like the silver trumpets of Jubilee. And then he shall say, let my captives go free. Then shall the tombs be opened in virtue of Christ's death and the very bodies of the saints shall live again in an eternity of glory. Then he finishes with a statement here, the dying savior cry. It is finished. This is an incredibly hopeful word. I hope it's hopeful for you. And I want to finish this before we go into a time of prayer. I'll let you go as we partake of communion. It's an opportunity for us to not only partake communion together. So if you'd like, why don't you grab your communion elements right now and we'll partake together. And as we do, I want to pray before we jump in and partake of the communion together to invite those of you. Because I realize, um, again, if you joined us Please let us know where you're at, you know, where you're from. If you joined us on Instagram live or Facebook live, let us know where you're coming from or you're, where you're watching from around the world, whatever city that you're from. Just drop your name and whatever city you're from. Um, but if you're watching and maybe you're not a follower of Jesus or maybe you're trying to make sense of who Jesus is, and maybe there's a lot of questions that you have about life and mortality and Jesus and the church and Christianity and religion, all these things. I get it. Um, sometimes the whole thing can be very confusing and sometimes people can be very misrepresentative about who God is, meaning somebody in your life may have grossly misrepresented who God is like. I get it. And I just want to say to you, I'm sorry that you had to endure that. My hope today that you would be able to see and cut through all of the morass, and all of the, the crazy images and the memes of Jesus that are out there that exist and populate the world in which we live in that you would see the true Jesus that was revealed in scripture today as one that deeply loves you. He knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to ultimately face our greatest tormenting enemy, death, and to meet it head on. That's exactly what it meant when Jesus said, it is finished. My hope would be that you would trust this Jesus with your life and again, you might have a lot of questions as to what that means. Those questions can be unpacked and dealt with as time comes. But I want to give you an opportunity that if, as you are watching, you would like to trust Jesus to just repeat after me. You can repeat in your own heart. That's amazing. You can do it under your breath. You can say it out loud if you're by yourself or if you're comfortable saying it in a group of other people, that's fine. But I just want to pray a simple prayer for you. And then I'm going to pray to lead us into a moment of communion. We'll partake together and then this will officially be tuned off and we'll move into our prayer room if you'd like to join us in the prayer room. So um, let me pray right now and you can join. So Jesus, right now, we thank you for your incredible love. And God, I pray if there are any here right now that are watching on Instagram Live or Facebook Live that are wrestling, truly wrestling with what it means to not only be human, wrestling with what it means to how to deal with death and pain and loss and grief and maybe even trying to make sense of who you are. Uh, I pray, Father, right now that you would open their hearts and draw them to you, Jesus. 
that with even the, the smallest amount of faith or confidence, may they just call upon your name. And here's a really cool thing is that scripture teaches that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't say those who you know go to confession or those who get baptized. All of those things may be a part of the, the walk of Jesus and what it means to be a Christian and live a, a life of faith. But these are not prerequisites that bring you into this place of relationship with God. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you're listening and you would like to find life in Jesus or find a sense of peace for that uh, chronic ache in your soul, um, then just call upon his name. Just say his name, Jesus, right now on your lips. Say, Jesus, I love you. I'm not even sure what that means, but I want to truly, truly love you. And I ask that you would wash me and forgive me of my sin, that you would make me a new person, that you would help me to work through my challenges and my struggles with who you are, with my lack of faith, and I trust you as my Savior. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.